welcome you here this morning. My name is Nate, one of the pastors here, and I've got the great privilege of teaching God's Word this morning. If you're a visitor with us, I'm glad you're here and you've joined us, and if you don't have a church family, I would hope you consider this your family. Open up to Ephesians chapter 2. We've been walking through the book of Ephesians, and this is what we typically do on a Sunday morning. We walk through whole books of the Bible, and we are in the middle of Ephesians. The letter to the Ephesians was a letter from the Apostle Paul to actually a group of churches in and around Ephesus. But more importantly, it was written to people. It was written to church families. People who trusted Jesus deeply, loved one another well, but absolutely, just like us, had real-world struggles. These people would have had a significant threat of persecution in their lives that they were constantly having to deal with, but also they had the, the challenge of bringing these two people groups that were opposed to each other together. Uniting the Jews and the Gentiles was a significant challenge. And so Paul writes this letter primarily to these new Gentile believers to tell them, look, you are welcomed into God's family. Paul is saying to them, you belong. You're welcomed here. You're, you're accepted. You are loved. And Paul is trying to create this culture within the church. And it's a culture that I am praying and have been praying that would be very evident at Mercy Hill. If you're new here, this means that you're welcome. If you're one of the first people to ever be part of Mercy Hill, of course, you're welcomed. If you're, it doesn't matter if you're young or if you're wise, you're welcomed here. It doesn't matter if you're, you're wealthy or you're poor or you're an OG Bullock County person or you come from New York City, you're welcomed. It doesn't matter if you got hair, if you don't have hair, if you're tall or you're short, if you're a Louisville fan or a Kentucky fan or even a Kansas City fan, you are welcomed here. And we want this church to feel like your family, which is really the heart of some of the changes we're going to be talking about later on in our members meeting, but we'll get to that later. Today, Paul's letter to the Ephesians is meant to unify the church. And so he starts the letter with this song that celebrates that in Christ he is bringing all things together in heaven and on earth. He's bringing all things together in Christ. And so last week we walked through this prayer report. It's a beautiful prayer. Prayer that I found myself praying often over this past week for myself and for others. Paul prays that these churches would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation, that their spiritual eyes would open to see just how amazing the hope that they have in their calling and that, that they would know that they are God's inheritance, his chosen and precious people. And he prays that they would know the immeasurable power they have in Christ. Not, not the power to do whatever they want to do. Okay, It's not that kind of power. It's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. It's a power that brings life out of death. It's a power that has the ability to take what is corrupt in us and in our society and turn it upside down to bring it something new, a new creation. He calls it later a new humanity, a new family. 
united in Christ. And it's power that I've had the, the privilege of having a front row seat over the past 10 years to see over and over here at Mercy Hill. Uh, yesterday, my wife and I spent almost the whole day just pouring over old pictures of the last 10 years and had a bunch of people sending us pictures of the last 10 years, some of them from very, very early on. And it's been amazing to, to, and encouraging to look at what God has done. I've had the amazing privilege of seeing God do miracles in people's lives. Um, I'll tell you one quick story. And some of you who are here at the very beginning will remember this, but Jessica Grimm was our first baptism. And Jessica actually came into contact with us before we even launched. We, we had our first outreach, and it was, <laughs> if you remember this, it was, uh, we, we called it a family festival. We were real cheap back then. I think we spray painted on a, on, a, on a banner the word family festival on it. And we set up at the old Shriners Club, uh, and we, uh, we had a connection to Lions Club, and so we, we rented the trailer, their, their uh, fry trailer. So we fried Twinkies and Oreos, and I remember Scott Slater got really sick because he ate way too much junk. And uh, Marvin Proctor brought a, uh, a, a little petting zoo, and we had an inflatable, and we had a handful of, of families that came by, but uh, Jessica, they were in the midst of transitioning down here. Her husband got a, a job at Ford, and so they were looking for houses, and she was literally just driving around with her kids, looking for something to do with her kids in Bullock County. And she happened to run across us. And so we had a good conversation with her. She left. Well, about a week or two later, I'm at my office at First Baptist Mount Washington at the time, and she walks into my office, and I couldn't even remember her name at, the, at that moment. She walks in and she says, I know your cousin Jessica. Well, they happen to have the same name. My, my cousin, I only have three cousins, by the way. Um, but. Jessica Grimm happened to grow up in the same area that I grew up in. She knew my cousin well. And so she went and she sought me out just to tell me that. And that started this relationship with her and Mercy Hill. And she had very little church background, didn't know the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament when it came to the Bible. But she came to love Jesus. And we discipled her and baptized her. And it set the tone especially in my mind and my heart, that God is in this. And I have seen it ever since then. I've had the privilege of walking with people through seasons of suffering and seeing God sustain them. I've seen God raise up ministers in the full-time ministry and ministries. I mean, Mark 12 is a testimony to God's power in provision. I've seen... God's power and his grace work in my own family. I mean, we are not the same people we were 10 years ago. Uh, I'm a little bit more gray, <laughs> I mean, wise. Uh, my, my wife is more beautiful than ever. <laughs> but more importantly, God has continued to teach us forgiveness and grace and empathy. I asked Cameron yesterday, what, what do you think God has taught us in the last 10 years? And she thought about it for a minute, and she said, his faithfulness. And that's absolutely true. And that is what has sustained us. Ah, oh, don't cry. Forgive <laughs> me. But that's what's been sustaining for the last 10 years. I'm looking forward to what God has to do in the next 10 years. But today, what I want to do is I want to go to God's Word because this is what has taught us and 
encouraged us over the last 10 years. Today, we're going to start walking through chapter 2. And I want you to remember the, the structure. If you, ha if you haven't been with us, this is just a quick review. The structure of Ephesians is this. The first three chapters of Ephesians is basically Paul's summary of the gospel. The second half of Ephesians, the third or the fourth, fifth, and sixth chapter is, okay, this is how you live in light of the gospel. Here's another way to look at it, though. The first three chapters is Paul sharing the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, coming to create this new humanity united in Christ under his loving rule. And the last three chapters is a glimpse into what this new humanity is to look like. So the structure of the first three chapters, the summary of the gospel, is also significant. So we, you see that it starts with, in chapter 1, this worship song. At the end of chapter 3, there's a worship song. And then right after that initial song, and before the, the ending song, Paul has these beautiful prayers. And then sandwiched in between the prayers and the songs, you've got the meat of the gospel, which climaxes at the very middle of the sandwich with this proclamation by Paul that we are all, both Jews and Gentiles, being built into this new temple, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so that's where we're heading, but here in this chapter 2, what we're going to see is there's two paragraphs. We're going to focus on the first paragraph today, the second paragraph next week, and what you're going to notice is they're very similar. In fact, today's outline will be the same as next week's outline. The first paragraph that we're going to look at today is more of, from a perspective, like a cosmic perspective. And you'll see what I mean by that. Next week is more about a covenantial perspective or a relational perspective perspective, but this is the outline. This is where we're headed. We're going to see these, both these paragraphs answer these four questions. First of all, who we were before Christ. Then they're going to talk about the problem. And then we're going to see a but God moment where God intervenes. And then finally, we're going to see who we are now in Christ. Let's pray one more time. We'll dive in. Oh, Father, thank you for sustaining us and for growing us and for just granting us so many blessings over the years. And I pray that right now you, once again, would open our spiritual eyes to see the hope that we have, to see your glory, to see your truth. Help me articulate it well and help us walk away from here being reminded of your grace and mercy and encouraged and challenged. Help our hearts believe and give us desires to live in light of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We pick up in chapter 2, verse 1. And, <laughs> and so it starts with that connecting word, and. So in light of everything that he just prayed about, and in light of him praying for us to have this revelation, this spirit of wisdom and revelation to know the hope and our calling, and, okay, this is why it's so amazing, it's because you are dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, 
following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, and the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. All right, obviously there's a lot to unpack. Let's start at the very beginning. This is who we were. So Paul begins this chapter by describing who we were before Christ. And notice, he, he's first, he's addressing the Gentiles, initially. He says, you, and this becomes even more evident in the second paragraph. He, he calls them out as Gentiles. But he's, that's who he's talking. When he says you, almost always, if not, if not always, in Ephesus, he's talking about you Gentiles, as opposed to him who is a Jewish believer. So y'all, plural, were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And so he's talking about us here, right? We're the Gentiles. Uh, we're not the Jew. We weren't raised as Jews, and so we are the Gentiles. And so he's calling out, you were the walking dead, is what he's saying. The original zombies. Physically, we might have been alive, but spiritually, we were a corpse. No hope. We walked in sin and rebellion. Paul goes on to call us children of wrath, which is what our nature, our very nature was. And notice the problem underlying this condition. So this is the second point. So we were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And notice in verse 3, this is a universal problem. So he says, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh. And so now Paul is saying, look, like even the Jews, even God's, Chosen people were following the prince of the power of the air. And as I studied this, I was surprised how often Paul talks about these spiritual powers at work in our world. I think in our, in our Western kind of materialist world, we kind of pass over and just kind of glance at these passages, don't really think much about them, because from a very early age, we are taught that what is true reality is only the things that we can observe and see. But in Paul's mind, there's this whole other spiritual realm that's all around. It's like the air we breathe. Let me just give you a few examples. Starting here in Ephesians, we've actually already see, seen Paul talk about these spiritual powers. 
So last week, as Paul's praying for the church's spiritual eyes to be able to open so they can see beyond what their physical eyes can see, he prays that they would have the power, the same power that raised Christ from the dead. And he says this in verse 20 and 21 of chapter 1. He says that this is the same power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places, so the heavenly realm, which is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Now, it's going to become evident that Paul is not simply talking about earthly powers here. As you walk further into Ephesians, if you look at chapter 4, verse 26, he says this, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, the word devil here, if you notice, is not capitalized because it's not a name. It's a title. It means adversary or enemy. And so this is the same title used for the one who is tempting Jesus in the wilderness after his baptism. Now, Paul mentions the devil again in chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. And listen to this carefully. Listen to his language here. Talking about put, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, of the adversary. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so he's using the same language that we just saw earlier in chapter 2. And this is a good summary of Paul's worldview. It's a worldview that Jesus had. It's a worldview that pervades the Old Testament. Uh, Jesus, when he was being arrested, he, he says to the people that are arresting him, this is your hour, and it's the power of darkness. And so in Paul's worldview, Jesus came not just to save us from our sins, but to also free us from these spiritual powers of darkness. And he makes this very clear in Colossians chapter 2. And so in Colossians chapter 2, listen to the language. It's very similar to what we're reading here in Ephesians chapter 2. He says this, And you, y'all, talking about the Gentiles again, I believe, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Okay, so he dealt with our sin, but also look at verse 15. In the same breath, he says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So in Paul's mind, Jesus went to battle for us against the powers of darkness. It was their hour, but just when they thought they had won the victory, Jesus rises from the grave, he triumphs over them, he puts them to shame, and it was Jesus that was the one who dealt the fatal blow, the lethal blow, I should say. And yes, we understand that these powers of, of, of this age, these dark powers are still very active, but they know their end is near. They're, they're like a snake who has been more, like wounded and is being sucked into a pit. They're like flopping around trying to snatch whoever they can 
and destroy whatever they can, but they, they're grasping at straws and because their days are numbered. Which brings us to the third point in today's passage, the but God moment. The moment where God intervenes on our behalf. Look back at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when he, we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Well, saved from what? Well, yeah, saved from our sins, saved from the wrath of God, but also saved from these dark spiritual powers. And notice Paul emphasizes God's character here as the primary motivation for him intervening and rescuing us. Paul makes it clear. There's nothing that we have done to merit his help. I mean, we were dead. And yet, because of his mercy, because of his love for us, he made us alive with Christ. And so there's nothing that we've done to deserve God's love. There's nothing that we've done to earn God's forgiveness or, or acceptance. And by the way, this is the same character that we saw in Exodus when we were walking through the book of Exodus. And the Israelites had just fallen and worshipped a golden calf and Moses mediates on their behalf, and, and God relents from destroying them. Why? Because he declares to Moses, because he is a merciful God, full of compassion and grace and slow to anger and abundant in chesed and loyal love and, and faithfulness. And so God had proven his love even to the Israelites beforehand by freeing them from slavery. And even though they would fail over and over and over and over, Throughout the rest of the Old Testament, Jesus still comes to die on the cross, to save them, to save us. Why? Because of God's character, because he is merciful and he is gracious. And this is something we need to be reminded of all the time. We so quickly forget. We need to be reminded of this, especially when we're struggling, especially when we have a marriage that is struggling or we feel the grief of losing a loved one or when we just feel alone or lost or life is just uncertain. We need to be reminded that this is our God and this is his character and that character never changes no matter what we've done or haven't done. His love for us never changes. And so now we move to the fourth point, who we are now in Christ. And so Paul is saying God has made us alive together. And I want you to notice that word together. Who does Paul have in mind here when he says together? He's talking about the Jews and the Gentiles are now together alive with Christ. The most unlikely of people have been brought together in Christ. And that's what the church is meant to be, right? A place where the most unlikely of friendships would happen and be sustained because we have been made alive together in Christ. And so this is why we can have millennials being good friends with boomers, even, right? This is why we can have Louisville fans and Kentucky fans in the same room because we worship the same God. We are in Christ together. But not only are we alive together with Christ, it's better than that, we are exalted with Christ. Again, this is one of those passages that just seems weird to us, and so we kind of skip over it. But look at verse 6. And we're raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that 
In the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And so because we were united to Christ, we share in this identity. Now, if you're a Bengals fan, because I know we have several of them in here today, you'll experience a little bit of this today as you're watching the, this big game. So if you're not a sports fan, just understand the Bengals had a really big football game today. And while you're watching this game, you'll experience, because you're on Team Bengals, right? And because you're on Team Bengals or Team Burrows, when they make a good play, you feel happy. Their victory, if they win, will be your victory. Their, their loss will be your loss. And you'll feel that. Emotionally, you'll feel that. So us being in Christ on Team Jesus, his victory becomes our victory. And his exaltation becomes our exaltation. So that in the coming age, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. We've been seated with Jesus to rule alongside him. Which is, if you think about it, that's what we were designed to be from the very beginning. Genesis chapter 1, we're made in God's image to be fruitful and multiply and what? Subdue the earth. I think Psalm 8, verses 4 through 9, really echoes this same idea. What is man that you're mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor? You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heaven, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the path of the sea. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And so Paul is saying in Ephesians that in Christ we are truly alive and exalted rulers granted authority by God to have dominion over his creation. And this doesn't mean we're domineering. It means that we reflect God's loving rule, his character, his love, his compassion, his grace, his mercy, his kindness, his faithfulness, that we spread that as we're fruitful and multiply. And so this is not some idea that's meant to boost our self-esteem. This is a present reality that we will enjoy in its fullness in the coming age. And so until then, we look to Christ. We rest in his grace, and we live in light of this new identity that he has given us. And I think in light of that, we look at the end of this paragraph. Paul ends the paragraph with this, verse 8. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For this is who we are. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, I'll tell you, this passage for the longest time confused me. Right? And I think it confuses a lot of people because often what we do is we hear verses 8 and 9, but we leave off verse 10 because we just don't know what to do with it. I mean, how, what is Paul saying here? I mean, he's saying we're not saved by works, but then in the same breath he says we were created for good works. So what do you do with that? Well, it's helped me to do a little bit of study on what Paul meant by grace, which is another one of those churchy words that, like, we think we know, but there's a, there's, a, there's a depth to it. 
that we need to learn and we need to understand. So the word grace in the original language in Greek is this word charis, which is this very general term, actually, that just simply means a gift or a favor. It, we get our English word charity from this word. And so in Paul's mind, grace is a gift. But when Paul thinks of gift, what is he thinking about? Okay, What does he mean by gift? So in our culture, the most virtuous gift is a gift that is given spontaneously and it's given without any kind of strings attached, right? So if you bring flowers to your wife on Valentine's Day, that's nice. But it's not nearly as meaningful if you bring flowers to, to her on just some random day because you're communicating to her, I don't feel like, I'm not obligated to do this. I just want to make you happy, right? So in traditional cultures, though, like ancient Rome, where Paul was, and almost every other traditional culture still today, this is not how they view gift-giving at all, okay? They view gift-giving a whole lot differently. They, they view gift-giving, and they have this expectation of reciprocity, that, that you would respond, and this didn't diminish the value of the gift, but it actually defined it, because gift-giving for them was a way to form a bond or a relationship. Gift giving for them was an invitation. It was saying, look, I want to, I want to know you. I want you to know me. I want to, to connect with you. I want to be bonded with you. And so traditional cultures, when a person of, of like higher status would give a gift to somebody of a lower status, they were considered to be very gracious because they knew that they were not going to receive back what they had given. But there was still an expectation for the person of lower status to reciprocate and, and to respond. And even though they didn't have the financial means to, to give a gift back as much as what they were given, they would respond by honoring the giver and showing their, their allegiance to the giver and showing gratitude to the giver and, and showing their, their faithfulness their loyalty to the giver. And so Paul has all of this in his mind. And, and you see it here in the text that, that Paul is really highlighting the incongruity, the, the mismatch of God who's a high status, the highest status, is giving us grace, a gift to us, lowly sinners, dead in our sins. But notice there is very much an expectation for us to respond because he's inviting us into a relationship. And so the initial response is faith, that we put our trust in him. And faith in Paul's mind is more than simply believing in something you cannot see. For Paul, when he speaks of faith, he's talking about a trusting in, a, a reliance upon. He, he's saying, he's talking about placing our our loyalty, our, our allegiance with Jesus. Say, look, I'm on team Jesus. I recognize Jesus as the Messiah, as the Savior, as the Lord. And we'll never be able to pay him back for what he's done for us, but we can respond by honoring him and trusting in him and relying upon him and showing our faithfulness to him. And with this in mind, I think this helps make verse 10 make a little bit more sense. Because 
We're, we're saved by grace through faith, so our works have done nothing to contribute to our salvation. They've done nothing to contribute to God pouring out his favor on us or giving us this gift. We've got no reason to boast because we were created by God. We are his workmanship, is how Paul puts it. Why? To reflect his glory. We were made in his image. His, we were to reflect his character. We, we were to spread his loving character to the rest of the world and his goodness to the rest of the world. And so now, through Christ, we're being reconciled to this identity, this purpose. So now, our good works, they don't save us. They're simply the natural and right response to God's grace. And, and I know the, the big question in the debate is, okay, where does this faith and where do these good works originate from? And it seems that the debate of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. If you read Paul, he seems to just be very comfortable with the mystery. He seems to have this category that many of us struggle to have of, okay, it, it's me, but it's not really me, right? Uh, for example, 1 Corinthians 15.10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace, his gift towards me was not in vain, okay? I responded. Is what he's saying. On the contrary, I worked, I worked harder than any of them. But well, let me clarify, though, <laughs> it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. There's a lot more we could go into. That's a, that's a deep rabbit hole that we don't have time to dip, dig into today. But I'm becoming more and more okay with the mystery of it. But let me summarize what we've heard in this paragraph. We were dead in our sins, without hope, deceived by the ruler of this age, deserving God's wrath. But God, because of his mercy and his love towards us, he intervened. And Jesus came and he died for sinners like you and like me, and he disarmed the spiritual powers that enslave us. And he's made us alive in Christ, and he's exalted us in Christ to spread his loving rule, to do what we were always made to do, to be his workmanship, made in his image, to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth spreading God's goodness and love everywhere. Mercy Hill, this is who we are. And by God's grace, this is who we will continue to be. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what a powerful passage that is packed with so much grace and evidence of your love and is difficult for us to even comprehend how much you love us and what you've created us to be and the blessing that we have to be in Christ together, made alive, not because of anything we've done, 
but it's solely because of who you are and what you have done on our behalf. I pray that we would rest in that, that we would rely on you more and more, and that you would cause us to desire to share with the world the good news of Jesus and the love that we have been shown for your glory, not ours. In Jesus' name.